You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 162 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is a listener feedback episode. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. I've been enjoying the summer, been fishing with my kids, been out swimming, just kind of doing good uh, middle-class summer things. Living in the Andy Griffith show. Awesome. <laughs> I don't know about all that as I record my podcast, but close enough. Uh, also joining us for the first time, I guess, in a certain way, is the assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, David Grubbs. Hello. David accepted this position after our last episode recorded, so we haven't made an official announcement on the podcast yet. David, do you want to talk about your new job a little bit? Well, I'm in, I'm excited to get it, and uh, I, I've been I've been happy at Central Christian up in Kansas uh, for for four years. Uh, it's it's a good place. I've got a lot of friends here, but uh, we're we're excited to be moving on to um, a, a newer, well, de- definitely bigger uh, institution. Uh, Houston Baptist is is. It's it's ten times bigger than where I work now, you guys. It's kind of disorienting, and Houston itself <laughs> is not McPherson, Kansas. So. Yeah, yeah. What what is it? The fourth largest American city? Uh, third or fourth? One 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 or, one or t'other. And yeah. sweaty. So, yes. So lot lots of adjustments, dear listeners. Lots of adjustments, and wow. we are in the midst of packing everything up. In fact, right now I am sitting in the middle of what used to be the awesomest office in the history of awesome. And now it's just naked walls and a stack of boxes full of books. Man, you gonna you gonna yeah. paint something obscene on the wall before you leave, David? No, that's that's not how I roll. So, if any of our <laughs> listeners are living in Houston, you might have an opportunity to meet David Grubbs if you stalk him at his new job. Yep, yep. <laughs> yes, it's kind of like the graffiti I saw this morning, and I'm probably gonna get in trouble saying this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. But someone had a. Uh, gone to a confederate war monument in south carolina and spray paint on it black lives mater nice <laughs> so, that'll teach him <laughs> i guess it's a message to the you know the tow truck from cars <laughs> who was a confederate sympathizer i, I got it. that's what i'm gonna guess i didn't know that until today was there a civil war in the cars universe was it like between four wheel drive and two wheel drive, or like uh, I, how I does race know. work in that universe? <laughs> I, I think it's uh, about two hundred laps. Well, Ford decla- decided to uh, de- de- declare uh, uh, independence from from the rest of the American automakers, and it didn't work out. Chevy peed on it, or had Calvin <laughs> anyway, pee on it. Anyway, <laughs> I knew I was going to get us in trouble. All right. <laughs> 
<laughs> do, I, do we have some email to read, Michael? We have so many emails to read. So what we're going to do is just go around in a circle, each of us reading one, and uh, until, until we're done here. Uh, by the way, if you are interested in having your email read on uh, one of these episodes, you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We're also available through Facebook and the blog, but we only tend to read the things sent to us via email. So if you want it read on the show, do email it to us. Do young people still have email? Or, or are they tweeting and vining and Snapchatting? I, I don't know. Do young people listen to us? Good point. Uh, some of my students do. Oh, well, good for them. None of my students ever did. None of my students do either, I don't think. Except Zach. Yay, Zach. In, 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 st- in spite of my passive-aggressive fishing attempts, but, you know, never mind. <laughs> hey, I, uh, I live in Minnesota, so I know something about passive-aggressive fishing. <laughs> All right, Grubs, read us the first email. Sure. This is from Graham Scott. Uh Here's the email. Whilst browsing the Why Christian Humanist page on the website, the part which piqued my attention was uh, the mentioning of Michael being a Christian existentialist. What does it mean to be a a Christian existentialist? Now I put the ball on the tee and you swing. Well, I mean, maybe the easiest thing to do is to tell you to go to the blog and search for... uh a series I did probably six years ago now called Why Christian Existentialism, I think, no? A primer for religious existentialism. Why Christian yeah. Existentialism is, in fact, the title of Graham's email. Mm-hmm. Um, so so if you search for it... Also, it also couldn't have been six years ago because our website didn't start until five years ago. It must have... It, you know what it was? It was in, in preparation for my comps. I, I wrote my own comps question for my existentialist ah, okay. comprehensive okay. exams. And so those, that series of blog posts was my attempt at answering the question I wrote. Gotcha. Um, I it's it's not um, comprehensive, despite being written for my comprehensive exams, and I <laughs> I suspect five years later I would go back on some of what I said there. But that that I think is a pretty good place to start. Um, mm-hmm. At its most basic, Christian existentialism or existentialism says existence precedes essence. Now, not all of them would agree with that, but that's Sartre's famous soundbite, and I think it's a good starting place. Existence precedes essence means that you don't have a built-in meaning to your life that is available to you in advance, and instead you must create that meaning as you go through your life. Christian existentialists, I suspect, would largely modify that and say that maybe that meaning exists, it's in the mind of God or what have you, but it's not available to us. Kierkegaard says, life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forward. And I think that's that's a pretty good Christian modification of existence precedes essence. Um, Mm. A whole host of other things go along with it. Uh, You have things like Human beings are free. We can do whatever we want, but we're ultimately responsible for what we do with our freedom. Um, So for the Christian existentialists, you are responsible for your every action, responsible to yourself, to the world, and to God. Um, I think most Christian existentialists are going to talk about God more as an absence than a presence. Uh, Kierkegaard, anyway, uh, suggests that passion is more important than doctrine. I I don't think that's a universal... Christian existentialist belief, you got a guy like Karl Barth who certainly does not uh, discount doctrine, uh, having written 175 volumes of church dogmatics or whatever. <laughs> however however many volumes that, that book runs to. Yeah, he, he liked dogmatics. Um, yeah. So, so I, I, 
in some ways, there are relatively few number of things you can say they all agree on. Existentialism is a strange movement because almost everybody we think of as an existentialist denied being an existentialist. <laughs> um, and and when you add another modifier in front of that, it makes it even more difficult. But those are, I think, the, the tenets of it that appeal most to me. Mm-hmm. I leave anything out there, Nathan? Well, uh, I wouldn't say he left things out so much as I would just add that this becomes especially useful when we get into the realm of biblical interpretation. Uh, Christian existentialism is a healthy reminder, I think, that the text of the Bible is certainly always before us. It always lies waiting to be read, uh, but that the reader and the interpreter and ultimately the teacher of the Bible is responsible for how we handle that text. Uh, so in other words, you know, Christian existentialism is a handy counterweight, if you will, to the all-too-common move of saying, well, this isn't me, this is just the Bible. Well, it is the Bible, it's also you. Right. Because, Be responsible for it. Because subjectivity is, is foremost for existentialism. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, we have another one that uh, goes in this existentialist direction. Uh, this is from David Manley. Uh, and I promised myself I wouldn't read his last name that way, but I just did. Uh, <laughs> and you're responsible for your <laughs> I, I violation of your see. own covenant. <laughs> see, listeners, this is this is uh, Christian existentialism in motion. Uh, I am responsible for reading his last name like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, he says, <laughs> I have started reading an introduction to the writings of Soren Kierkegaard, titled Provocations, Spiritual Writings of Kierkegaard. I was wondering if any of the Christian humanists have discovered a way to read Kierkegaard without abandoning the local church, because he writes some strong criticisms. For example, quote, Think of a hospital. The patients are dying like flies. Every method is tried to make things better. It's no use. Where does the sickness come from? It comes from the building. The whole building is full of poison. So it is in the religious sphere. One person thinks it would help if we got a new hymnal, another a new altar book, another a musical service, and so on. It's no use. It comes from the building. This whole pile of lumber of an established church, which from time immemorial has not been ventilated, spiritually speaking, the air confined in this lumber room has developed poison, and for this reason the religious life is sick or has died out, close quote. David goes on to say, I was interested in your thoughts. I am not sure if Kierkegaard's works are too massive for the Christian Humanist podcast or if his thoughts would take a lifetime to unfold. However, I would enjoy any insights you might offer. So, Michael, we're going to kick this one to you as well. First of all, yes, they're too massive for us, but that's true of almost anybody. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anybody we could cover in toto. Um, we we have not done a Kierkegaard episode. We really need to pick a short text and, and do one. Maybe The Sickness Unto Death, or he has an essay called The Difference Between a Genius and an Apostle, which is quite short. Uh, so mm -hmm. maybe we'll do one of those soon because – does seem like an oversight. We've talked on this podcast before about the decline of faith in the West, or at least the, the decline of institutional faith in the West, and I wonder if Kierkegaard might give us a reason to be not sad about that. Happy is probably too strong a word, but not sad, because what mm -hmm. Kierkegaard points out over and over again, not just in the passage that David sent us, but uh, really throughout his spiritual writings, is that the institutional church, and especially the state-funded, state-controlled church like they had in Denmark, and continue to have in Denmark, um, something like 95% of Danes are 
Lutherans, but like 20, 15, 20% of them believe in God. And, and mm-hmm. Kierkegaard, I don't think would be surprised by that because what, what he says is this institutional church actually masks the true nature of Christianity. This is something you have to live and die for. It's not something you can kind of just pick up and do like other social obligations. So I, I wonder if what we're seeing with the decline of faith in the West is is not so much the decline of faith, but the decline of social faith. And and what you what you're going to have left is people who are willing to live and die for it instead of people who just see it as something to be fulfilled along with a number of other social obligations. So I think that's one way to read Kierkegaard at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think when when you look at when it, especially when it says the word established, I, I think you need to see that not as an official church that has a you know like a like an official local congregation. I, I don't think those categories allied as as easily. As all right, that. right, yeah. I mean, this is established in the sense of the First Amendment of the Federal Constitution, right? Uh, you know, Congress shall pass no law establishing religion, right? Right. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know a congressman is not allowed to pray in Congress, it means that you can't declare that the United States of America is now Episcopalian. I, right. I do want to make sure that we don't make Kierkegaard unmonstrous, because I, I what what he's saying here should be a little scary at the same time, because I, I do think Kierkegaard is, is against local congregations, too. Um, mm-hmm. Because he sees faith so much as this individual encounter between a person and God, I, I'm not sure that he would really see a place for even a local congregation in an unestablished church. Mm. Okay, all right. And there, I, I think, at a certain point, I just have to say, okay, I don't agree with Kierkegaard here. I don't think that's true. I don't think you can just do this alone. But from my reading of him, and I have not read everything, and I haven't read that many of his spiritual writings in particular, but from my reading of Kierkegaard, he does not leave a whole lot of place open for any kind of corporate approach to God. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's so much the individual in fear and trembling, you know. Well, it almost seems like a Donatist heresy of one. <laughs> Could you explain what that means, David? I'm not up on my heresies, I'm afraid. Oh, right. um, and, and thank you for the Milton reference. <laughs> um, the Donatists, uh, it was it was a North African heresy that was basically concerned about the uh, the purity of the purity of the church uh, in that uh, dur- during the periods of persecution, some Christians weathered the persecution with their public testimony intact. Other Christians recanted in the face of commands to do so. Um, and the church was initially divided over whether or not to readmit those who had recanted. Uh, now, among the, some of those who uh who are kind of hardline on that point and said, no, if you, if you reject the faith in the face of persecution, there's no forgiveness. You ain't coming back. Um, some of those people who were readmitted in other churches had been clergy and resumed their clerical functions. And so the hardliners said churches that have these, uh, clergy that had previously recanted, um, their uh, their sacraments no longer hold. Their ordinations don't hold. They don't have a real succession of bishops. They don't have a real ordination of priests. Um, when you go to the Eucharist, the Eucharist doesn't take. When you get baptized, the baptism doesn't take because the person who's administering it is not in a right um, line of of 
uh, you know, authentic uh, church lineage, so to speak. But, but basically, that you know, if if Kierkegaard is so concerned about the um, the poisoning of the institution, it's it seems to be kind of that that Donatist instinct of keep the institution pure kind of worked out to the nth degree. Right, yeah, the logical conclusion of it, because th- there is no pure institution. Right. Mm-hmm. So, that's all I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just one of those places where Kierkegaard is so horrifying that it's... The, the, the act of being horrified is the appropriate response, I think. I mean, because the, the, to, to agree with him is to suggest that at a certain point, I'm not sure how you can have any doctrine whatsoever without some sort of governing body. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, well, not to mention, I mean, part of the grace of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we get to live with sinners and forgive each other. Right. And right. I mean, I, I I think this is where, you know, Dostoevsky, to pull in another existentialist writer who wouldn't call himself existentialist, uh, <laughs> is a nice counterbalance to what Kierkegaard is doing there. Mm. And, and Gabriel Marcel as well, who um, probably still wouldn't call himself an existentialist, although he is the guy who coined the term. He <laughs> he um, he he's very interested in the in the way that in an existentialist universe we relate with one another. And, and so I think I think if you're if you're looking in the broader existentialist tradition for some way to justify local congregations, that might be a good place to do it. Okay, very good. Well, we have an email here from Paul Schleifer. Um, we talked, this, this needs a, probably a little bit of explanation because it's been so long since we talked about it, but back in uh, February, I think, we talked about this situation at Marquette University where a uh, tenured professor published the name of a graduate assistant who had, uh, he, she had, she had shut down some conversation from a conservative student in class, and uh, the, the professor, McAdams, uh, got suspended despite the fact that he was tenured. Um, Paul Schleifer sends us an article from The Atlantic about that situation. We'll put that in the show notes. And then he says, One comment about the unequal power of McAdams relative to Abbott. And and, uh, I believe, I can't remember if it was me or Nathan who talked about that unequal power, but we definitely talked about it. I I actually think it was Danny. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was Bachelor number three. Oh, you were in on that one? Yeah, yeah, I was in that. Oh, I thought that was one where Danny was coming in for us. Yeah, no, I was, I, I was in that one. Okay, then it was probably Michael because I, I learned about this situation while we were recording that episode. Oh, I see. So yeah, it probably wasn't <laughs> me. Since they were not in the same department, Paul says, and since McAdams had no supervisory authority over Abbott and her role as paid instructor or her role as graduate student, I do not see how there is any power in the relationship at all. In my position at SWU, uh, I think that's Southern Wesleyan University, I report to my division chair, my dean, the provost, when there once again is one, the president and the board. The dean of the School of Business has no authority over me, and so there is no power in the relationship at all. What Marquette's Dean Holt seems to be responding to more than anything is that by naming the instructor-slash-grad student, McAdams opened Abbott up to some vicious personal criticism and even threats, most likely by anonymous students. There is no indication that McAdams encouraged such a response to Abbott. McAdams himself in no way threatened Abbott with being fired, losing her assistantship if she had one, seeing her research program disrupted, or being expelled from school, none of which he could have accomplished. And of course the question remains, had the student objected to an instructor's allowing anti-gay marriage sentiments to be expressed in 
online class, and had the instructor invited the student to drop the class if not comfortable with the instructors allowing such ideas to be expressed, and had a so-called progressive professor called out this instructor by name, and had there been a response by students, would the so-called progressive professor have been fired? Or, had the professor been 39 instead of 69, would he have been fired? Or if McAdams had been a she, or a member of a protected minority, would she, he, she have been fired? Such speculations are, I think, worth considering in a discussion of academic freedom and intellectual diversity. What do you guys think? Well, first of all, the, the end of that email, um, and I'm, I'm just going to name this phenomenon because I'm not sure why it is that I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but the phenomenon of the what I call the partisan counterfactual, you know, if this had been a black person, would it have gone down the same? If this had been an evangelical, would it have gone down the same? If this had been a Muslim, had this would this have gone down the same? That sort of thing, I mean, I understand rhetorically where the force comes. Uh, I think that philosophically, though, it's you're, you're introducing so many variables when you dig into that that I find it more useful to look at the situation at hand rather than spend too much time on the counterfactuals. Does that I make like, some sense? I think one of his counterfactuals makes sense, though, if you, okay. just res- if you just reverse the polarities of the particular issue in question. Uh-huh. That, that, one, that one, I think, makes... Uh, I mean, I, I see your objection for counterfactuals, and that, yeah, I, I feel the weight of that. But when he says, if it had been a progressive... Uh, tenured professor and the 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 opinions being expressed in the class were mm-hmm. anti-gay marriage and a progressive student was told to you know you know shut up or leave um i i think that is a, a counterfactual worth taking into consideration and, and if the answer is no the the liberal professor wouldn't have been reprimanded you you have not an issue about respecting graduate students, but instead an issue about sticking to academic orthodoxy. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I can grant that. Yeah. But we don't know that answer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, in, in this one, I mean, I, I appreciate Paul's distinction between public exposure on one hand and official institutional authority on the other. Mm-hmm. That said... And, and and again, I'm working on instinct here. I, I haven't articulated a philosophical response to it, really. But my instincts tell me that there is still, even if it's not official institutional power, there's still a strangeness in the balance of power here. Right. Because the tenured professor is going to have a network of contacts, is going to have influence in academic circles more broadly, and especially in the era of electronic publishing where 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 academics are writing not only for other academics but also for internet audiences uh i mean this does stand to open up this grad student to problems down the road now mm-hmm. the question remains i mean is it a good thing to do because it might be that you know this grad student you know needs to have an experience of you know i shouldn't have done that and i'm not going to do it again i'll i'll grant that possibility but it still strikes me as something where we need to talk about power, even if ultimately we land on the position that this professor was right in exerting this sort of social power and influence this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a difference between the hard power of supervisory authority, as Paul puts it, and the kind of soft power dynamics that 
always exist or almost always exist in human relationships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In this case, the, the, the power of prestige, which is a kind of, uh, a kind of institutional ethos. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, well, the and power it, of job security, which, which um, McAdams has to a level that Abbott doesn't have. Right, right. And, and it, this is one of those places where someone who's done, I think, some of the best work on these dynamics is, is John Mark Reynolds. Uh, I mean, he d- he's done a fair bit of writing and then also podcast recording on this phenomenon of sort of internet, um, I don't even know what to call it, the, the, the culture of moralistic exposure on the internet. In other words, I'm going to find your most tenuous moment and I'm going to broadcast it so that everyone associates you first and foremost with your worst moment. Right. None of us want that to happen to us, that's for sure. Well, precisely, precisely. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, I, I will say that the internet rage machine, and I got that phrase from Danny Anderson, uh, tends not to have any qualms, whether we're talking about, you know, whichever partisan group attacking its partisan enemies. I mean, there's very mm-hmm. much a sense that, you know, well, it's out there in the public, it's available, so therefore it's good for me to do it because it's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. I, I have real problems with that, I won't lie. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I, I think my reaction probably would have been very similar if if the the political polarities were reversed here. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think at the very least it was in bad taste. Now, I'm not sure we should be suspending tenure for bad taste. No. no. Well, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you go that far, I mean, then you've got a different question, but... I think that we need to treat the question, is there a power dynamic here, as one question, should McAdams have been suspended from tenure as a second question? Right. Yeah. Well, I do think we also need to factor in um, our current, the, the, the current, I, uh, I don't want to say obsession, but, but certainly sort of fascination and unconsidered kind of moral high ground about about anything that could be considered bullying. Yeah. If you can paint someone as a bully, nothing else matters. Bully versus protest is a is a like I, yeah. I, I am I am not sure there's such a hard and fast line between bullying and protest. Right, right. There's there's a Ronald Reagan reference on the near horizon. Well, not 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 for me, but but once that narrative Oh no 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 I mean his famous imposed. line that, you know, one man's Terrorist is another's freedom fighter. Well, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, once once that narrative gets imposed on you, it it doesn't matter how how good your objections were if 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 you're if you're construed as a bully. But then you get into a position in which those who could ever be construed as having any kind of power or influence that's that's asymmetrical with the other person. Um to where it, it, it generates a kind of paralysis. You can't ever speak. Especially if you're speaking against political orthodoxy. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Our next email is from Michael Gore. Uh, here, here it is. Uh, if you've not seen the Russian director Pavel Lungan, I, I guess that's how I'll say it, uh, film The Island, I highly recommend it. It is an amazing and profound film that that portrays the orthodox tradition of the holy fool. It's a beautiful and deeply spiritual film. And this was in relationship to the episode on fools that was mm-hmm. done back. Uh, anyone seen that? Nope. 
No. I saw the Michael Bay film, The Island, which is neither amazing, profound, <laughs> beautiful, nor deeply spiritual. Yeah, yeah. Is it is it foolish? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Oh, you know what's really foolish? My going to see it because Scarlett Johansson was in it. Uh, that that was who's who's the real fool? Uh, I I don't know this. I don't know this Russian film though. Okay, I think I saw the trailer for it. It was about monks, and you know I'm a sucker for monks. And I remember seeing, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I remember seeing a series of beautiful images and having no idea what was going on because you know it was Russian. Sounds like an art film. Well, we got another one uh, from Peter Gertson that's related about another uh, Dostoevsky and fool. Um, your discussion of Elder Zosimov from the Brothers Karamazov in the Fool-themed episode reminded me of The Idiot, an entire novel Dostoevsky wrote about a holy fool. The title character, Prince Mishkin, uh, appears idiotic not only because of his epilepsy, but more significantly because his soul is unsuited to this world. Those around him are simultaneously attracted by his purity of heart and frustrated by his resistance to materialism and lasciviousness, even when he has every opportunity to live selfishly. And every Tuesday, I look forward to downloading the podcast. Thanks, and God bless you for your work. So, thoughts on The Idiot? I have not read The Idiot. Of the of the big four Dostoevsky novels, Notes from Underground, The Idiot, Crimes and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, that is the only one I haven't read. I mean, I know Prince, Prince Mishkin is a holy fool, and that's about the extent of my knowledge of that book. Have you read that, Nathan? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I've also read the other three of the big four. <laughs> so, <laughs> Peter, we are so sorry. You've, you, you've discovered a, a gap in our uh, Dostoevsky lore. <laughs> well, nonetheless, holy fool, Prince Mishkin. Yes, yes. Um, I, I've not read it either, but it was assigned in uh, a world literature class at Central um, in this past year. And so Prince Mishkin kind of became something of an idiom in the English department for someone whose uh, naivete leads them to not get the jokes around them. Oh, nice. goodness. Yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah. So I, I have a, yeah, there are a couple of students here who are, who are Prince Mishkins in that sense, and God love them. <laughs> Nathan? Well, we got an email from Joel Joslin, which is a lovely bullet list up bullet list email. Joel says, uh, here were a few episode ideas I thought up. Keep up the good work, and here's the bullet list. The Desert, the Protestant Reformation, the Cold War, the Simpsons, Kurt Vonnegut, John Steinbeck, The Wind in the Willows, Jurassic Park, Proverbs, or maybe a Proverbs slash Job slash Ecclesiastes triptych. Authorial intent slash death of the author, nominalism and realism, more mu music episodes, and cars. And then I'll, I'll go ahead and read his other one, too, because it is likened to the first. Um, one more, Dr. Faustus, or maybe more generally, Shakespeare's contemporary playwrights. So in that big list, gentlemen, what stands out to you? I'll, I'll go ahead and lead off and say... Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, I mean, I, he, we could do an episode on any of his novels and then do another episode on another one. So I wouldn't want to do just one grand sweeping Vonnegut episode. I'd want to do a novel episode. I think the only one I read was Slaughterhouse-Five. Mm. Oh, goodness. I've, I've probably read at least a half dozen of them, maybe ten. I've got almost all of them because I get the Library of America books and, and they, for whatever reason, sent me two full volumes of Vonnegut, but I haven't. Okay. 
I haven't read Beyond Soul. I think I read part of what was the first one? Sirens of Titan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah. Don't, I don't. Remember, I don't remember if that one's it or not. But anyway, I could do Slaughterhouse Five. The Simpsons. I could talk endlessly about the first ten seasons of The Simpsons. I am exactly the right age to to do that. In fact, it, my my wife and I've been rewatching it, and every so often she turns to me and says, "I thought you made that phrase up. You're much less funny than I thought you were." <laughs> <laughs> so, I could definitely do The Simpsons. I just awesome. rewatched Jurassic Park. Um, I could I could do the movie. I haven't read the book since middle school. Oh, I never did read the book, but I'd be I, I'd love to talk about the movie. Mm. We, people have been asking us to do a Protestant Reformation episode since our first season. Yeah, and we've done a Calvin episode. We did an episode. What was it? A couple years ago on uh, Luther's uh, on the freedom of a Christian. Right, but never one that deals with the kind of history of the Protestant Reformation. Probably because I don't yeah, know that taken. much. Point taken. Yeah. So that's a possibility. I could yeah. definitely do a Death of the Author episode. I mean, we could just read the Roland Barthes uh, essay and talk about it. Okay. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes is is attractive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it's kind of love, crazy we haven't I done that yet. The Willows. And then Cars, I, I, I mean, my hope is he meant the Pixar movie, but if he means like the actual machines, I don't know much about them. Good luck. <laughs> We drive in those. Yes, um, yes. As far as Faustus and Shakespeare's contemporaries, we may have a another early modernist on the uh, podcast in the fall, so you might get that episode. Mm-hmm. Right. And there will be more music episodes, I'm sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's see here. The next one. Sorry, and I'm, I'm looking at our index here. I'm working off of two uh, lists. Aaron, uh, Aaron, Aaron Braunschweig, Braunschweig uh, says, I demand an episode on Seinfeld. Thank you. Uh, so <laughs> I say, good luck. <laughs> hey, man. They're, uh, it's, it's the, whole, the whole series is going up on Hulu Plus on Wednesday. They've been leaking one episode at a time, and uh, we've been watching those. And uh, that show is, in some ways, very much a product of its time, but uh, it's, uh, it's still pretty funny. Alright, I, I've watched maybe three episodes of Seinfeld. It's as nihilistic a show as has ever been on television. Like okay. it's it's as nihilistic as Breaking Bad or The Shield. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, funny. <laughs> funny nihilism. That's uh, mm. you know, that's John Barth's definition of postmodernism. He's a smiling nihilist. Interesting. Well there you go. I've, I've, I think I've seen maybe one episode of Seinfeld ever, and I didn't, I didn't get the, the hype. So. so this is why we don't do a lot of TV episodes. Have we ever done a TV episode? Like a, 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 we did reality TV, but have we ever done an episode on a particular television show? I don't know that we have. I mean, I, I, I think Michael, you and I have shows that we really like, and those lists just don't overlap. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you guys ever want to do an episode about Twin Peaks, I've never seen me, Twin just Peaks. Just let me know. Nor have I. Oh, talk about nihilism! My oh. wife loves Twin Peaks. No, and I, and I mean, I did that uh, profiles episode with Trip Fuller about House of Cards, but another show as my wife trio, watches that I don't. <laughs> oh, I, I, well, I mean, it's because she's a Shakespeare person. I like it's I a, like sitcoms. Yeah, I, no, I don't, I don't I, watch I, a lot I, of drama. House of Cards is what might have happened if Shakespeare wrote a 
TV series based in Washington. <laughs> there you go. Well, our next e- email is from Isabel Ayer. She says, Farmer, is your favorite Adam's description of Jefferson? I, I believe she's referring to progenitor of mulattoes. <laughs> what, what, what other could be? I don't know. Adams has a lot of great descriptions, as we'll see. Better or worse than my favorite Adams description of Hamilton, the bastard brat of a Scotch peddler. <laughs> Keeping in mind that these were two guys on the same political side adds to the hilarity, to which I'll add um, Adams' description. I think it was The Age of Reason, but it may have been Common Sense by Thomas Paine, uh, a crapulous mess. <laughs> <laughs> Adam seems to have been a pretty unpleasant guy in a lot of ways. On the subject of the French Revolution and Jefferson's views, quote, The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure, is a quote that definitely applies. I'm sure there's a good episode of the Thomas Jefferson Hour on iTunes that addresses this subject in depth, but my understanding from the couple of years I listened to that show was that Jefferson was pro-French Revolution for an embarrassingly long amount of time, saw it as a kind of spiritual successor to the American Revolution, and would not admit that he might have been mistaken about its character even years later. He was actually pretty annoyed that Washington asked him to become the first Secretary of State because he wanted to return to France and be there to see the revolution unfold firsthand. Side thought. Thomas Jefferson's misadventures in bloody revolutionary France. Cool idea for a turtle, Harry Turtledove-esque alternative history novel? Yes. And, <laughs> and an expansion for that Assassin's Creed game. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so you're talking about the one set in the French Revolution, not the one set in the American Revolution? Uh, oh, hey, what the heck? Overlap them, there, man. Yeah, there you, he, the, Jefferson could be the go-between. <laughs> I never played the French Revolution when it was supposed to be pretty bad. Jefferson's well, yeah. not in the American Revolution one either. I don't think. Washington is. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> the question is, would Jefferson be a Templar or an assassin? Oh. I, I've never played any of these games, so you're... This, you're... this is the only video game I play. The only video game for the last 15 <laughs> years that I play. You're, you're speaking in tongues of men and angels here, man. <laughs> I Yeah, I... I don't, I don't know, but that would be that would be really, 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 really fun. Somehow, I think that Thomas Jefferson would be the one with the knife, though. Yeah, probably. You know, Not the next you. the next one in that series is Victorian England. Yeah, I saw a trailer for that. It looked pretty cool. I'm not oh, sure we answered yeah. Isabel's question, or if she had a question. I think she was just telling us more about Jefferson and the Revolution. <laughs> sorry, sorry to go off of this uh, tangent. You know, I well, I love the phrase. Um, I, I I love the phrase uh, "pro French Revolution" for an embarrassingly long amount of time. That's that's. Yeah. Anyway, I, I love the idea of Jefferson being the guy over on the side, going like, well, it, it, "I still it, like." It would have been interesting to see what happened if he had gone over there, because you know Thomas Paine got thrown in jail. Mm-hmm. Th- Thomas Paine went over to help with the French Revolution and ended up rotting in a French prison cell. So I think Jefferson got him out. I don't know. Yeah, you you wouldn't send Franklin over. Franklin wouldn't be on the side of the revolutionaries. He'd be partying. <laughs> they did send Franklin over, I guess, just not during the revolution. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, he was more of an establishment guy. How have we not done a Franklin episode, by the way? There, There's a guy who demands our irreverent treatment of history. 
Well, okay, maybe perhaps we can add in the that future, to the roster. Perhaps in the future. We, we, should do, we should do an episode on that essay where he uh, asks the Academy of, of Sciences to invent a way for farts not to smell bad. <laughs> Excellent. Can I read the next one? Please. Because it, it's also kind of directed at you. It's also about um, farts. <laughs> this is from Mike, no last name. All the mics ever sent this email. Um, just wanted to thank you for the podcast. Enjoy most of them most of the time, which is a pretty good batting average. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, I'm reminded of the unity yet diversity of the Trinity and the way you interact. Don't let that go too far. But hopefully you get what I'm appreciating about you all. Or, for Nathan, y'all. Yeah, that line confused me. But carry on, David. Well, you're the one well, who lives in the South, but D- David and I are the native Southerners. Yeah, yeah. Although I have never said y'all my entire life, not once. I say you're y'all. also from the suburbs of Atlanta. How dare you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I say y'all fair, fairly frequently. When I'm not saying you guys with a kind of pointed irony. Yes. <laughs> that I've not said. Uh, only one criticism, and I'll never trust Michael Farmer's movie TV recommendations again. Oh, my wife, 14-year-old daughter, and I watched The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Don't know about my daughter, but after watching two episodes, my wife and I felt we needed to jump into a decontamination chamber, one of the most disgusting and non-redeeming things we have watched. And we do get the point, but certainly Elf gets you there without the cringing. Okay, venting over and carry on. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. I didn't mean to gross you out. Yeah, Yeah, and I, I still haven't watched this show, so I mean, I, I'll, I'll just have to... I appreciate yeah. the email. Who are you, you going to believe? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still calling it in my head the invincible Kimmy Gibbler, so, you know, that's <laughs> something else entirely. Nice. You going to watch that new Full House sequel, David? Uh, almost certainly not. You know, my idea for that sequel, and I'm not sure this is going to make Mike like me anymore, but you know, my idea for that sequel is you make Kimmy Gibbler and DJ be lovers right they, so they they live together and they're 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 a lesbian couple but you don't tell candace cameron that's what's happening because she wouldn't sign on i'm sure if she knew so it, it's just complete subtext that's how i would write oh. that show if i were asked if i were asked to write it what like ben her uh, yeah <laughs> wow spartacus uh, <laughs> oh my word oh man all right, well, David, our next one is directed directly at you, so Michael's off the hook for a moment. Uh, I think this is a letter for Dr. Grubbs. What a lovely uh, Marguerite opening. Uh, <laughs> I suspect he is probably the best person to answer it, perhaps not. The question is sincere, despite the fact that it might sound flippant and generally off-topic. What a great preamble, by the way. Uh, <laughs> back to the letter. I will explain why I ask. And, and, th- and then the bomb what is the purpose of people believing the Earth is 6,000 years old, and why is this convincing? Uh, she goes on to say, I don't actually struggle with the Earth being 6,000 years old because I was raised to think this was a non-issue, and then I went to college and studied biology. The Earth is not 6,000 years old. Fine. I asked because I have a friend who spent so long digging into Dawkins and Hitchens and stuff that he thought it was morally obligated to seek out the other side and see what the big deal was which is the best possible response, in my humble opinion. 
When we were unable to find the answer by reading, he created an online community specifically for the purpose of discussing this in a non-judgmental way. And of course, <laughs> I found a lot of people to talk, but nobody to explain why they are so convinced that this is a thing and is important. So then he starts talking to me about how depressed he is about his forum, and maybe there aren't any answers. And really, when a guy I don't know very well who thinks I look like a giant owl because that's his Facebook profile decides to start talking about Kierkegaard and why he quit teaching Sunday school to me at 2 a.m., I want to help that guy. And my solution is to find people who actually, who actually really like speaking rationally and have at least some sympathy or experience with the viewpoint to explain it. I can think of one person, and that's you. <laughs> Won't you please tell my friend why all these people care or why maybe you know someone who can. I'm really at a loss here. Thank you. First of all, what a great email. Yes, Stephanie, please <laughs> yeah. write in more. <laughs> yes, yes it's, it's, it's Stephanie Gorsi, a fantastic epistolarist or whatever. Yes, yes. Letter writer. She writes good letters, too. Yes. <laughs> um, so oh, yeah, my. David, go ahead and tee off on that, because I have a couple things I want to say, but I want to hear from you yeah. first. Well, what I'm going to focus on is the what's the purpose of believing, why is it convincing, and her general, um, her general question, which is, which is not necessarily for you know a rousing defense of a young Earth, but an attempt to get inside the heads of those who believe that and say why why do they feel this issue so hard? Right. Right. You know, if if your if your default is this is a non-issue, then you, you don't feel it. You, you don't feel the issue with the intense, the intensity of those, you know, who do think it is. So that, thank you, Stephanie, first for asking the question and, and, and seeing that particular question. Why do people, why are, why is this such a big deal for some people? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's, that's a great question. And one that I don't think is, is, is asked often enough. Um, so first the, the purpose of believing the earth is 6,000 years old. Um, it's, it's not so much the issue of that precise number, because there actually has been in the history of the church debate about what that precise number is. Um, the, you know, the 6,000 years old, that's James Usher, right? Mm-hmm. But James Usher was coming to it fairly late in the game. Right. Uh, the first person I know of who calculated world chronology by by that particular means was Theophilus of Antioch in the mid to late 2nd century. Um, basically what they do is they take the book of Genesis, they take the genealogies um, in the book of Genesis that come um, in those first chapters, and you have, beginning with Adam, Adam lives a certain amount of years, begets sons and daughters, and dies. He has a son who lives a certain amount of years, begets sons and daughters, and dies. He has a son, beget, you know, so that you've got these genealogies in Genesis that begin at Adam, and they trace all the way through to Abraham. And then when you connect those up with genealogies uh, in Numbers, and especially First Chronicles, you can just sort of add up the numbers associated with the names. And when you and when you finish doing the addition, you end up with a number that's within spitting distance of James Usher's 6,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was until 
late well actually until until the 19th century it wasn't until the 1800s that that this didn't seem like the obvious way to calculate how old the earth was for christians um you know we inherit theophilus did it but then eusebius of caesarea in his chronicon um did a chronology of the world that basically became Western Christianity, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and then later Protestant, their view of what the history of the world was and how it connected to the to the history of other cultures. This is how everyone saw the past of the world. So for the for for Christians who are still thinking uh, who who still read Genesis in that way and think of the past of the world in that way, the question is not just how old the earth is it's how do i read the book of genesis and is the book of genesis correct in what it says about the history of the world in this issue we have two different decisions to make first is genesis correct in what it says at all um there we're dealing with the issue of scriptural authority and whether the authority of Scripture also entails um, whether or not it makes mistakes or errors in those things that it asserts. The infallibility, larger topic, or the inerrancy, more precise topic, um, is the issue there. So first, is Genesis correct in what it says? The second issue is what is Genesis actually attempting to say? And there you have an issue of genre. Are we reading the book of Genesis rightly? So those who want to say um, the earth is roughly 6,000 years old, they're saying we have understood the book of Genesis as being basically historical, and we are understanding that uh, scripture to be uh, correct in what it asserts about history, and so that's where we're going to stand. Um, the other, that's basically column, I'm going to call that column A, three other columns. There's column B, which says scripture is authoritative. It's correct in what it asserts, but you've read Genesis wrongly when you read it as history. If you read it in a different genre and you read it as asserting correctly things that are not necessarily historical, then you maintain the authority of scripture, but you're not lucked into 6,000 year old history. Column C says, well, you guys have misunderstood the authority of Scripture. Scripture's authority doesn't necessarily mean that it is always correct in everything it asserts. That authority and uh, human error can go hand in hand. And then column D would say, well, maybe the Bible thinks that it's authoritative and inerrant, but it isn't. It's just wrong. Who cares what the Bible says? So th that that's basically our options. Column A, Genesis is history, and Genesis is right. Column B, Genesis is right, but we don't necessarily read it as history. Column C, Genesis is authoritative, but that doesn't lock us into saying that every every word in Genesis is factually correct, precisely as we understand it. And then column D says who gives a rip what the Bible says. Right. 
So the, those are those are basically, as I see it, your your options in dealing in dealing with Genesis, and there and your people who are going to say the Earth is about six thousand years old, which more precisely is to say there's si- about six thousand years of human history, because it's based on a genealogy that begins with Adam. Now, frequently that's tied in with people who also see creation as happening in six literal twenty-four hour days, so they often go hand in hand. But I think logically those things are separable because the 6,000-year chronology is based on the genealogies of Genesis while the six-day, 24-hour creation is based on a particular reading of Genesis 1. So uh, if that helps you feel how important that is, it's not just quibbling about a particular number. It's, It's a serious debate about how you read the whole Bible and if the Bible is authoritative, what that authority implies. So this is an, an issue that, that touches a lot of other important issues, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a hermeneutic principle rather than necessarily a scientific one. Right. And, I mean, think about it in that 19th century context that, that David started out with. I mean, this is a question not only of geology and biology, but it's also a question of philosophical historicism, right? Right. Uh, And I mean, one of the, I think, unfortunate things about the way that Christians, some Christians, have responded to the rise of historicism is that they've regarded them, regarded it, pardon me, as a piece with 19th century atheism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And I think that's unfortunate because I think that if we regard the scriptural narratives from within a historicist framework to, to, for lack of a better metaphor, uh, we can talk about the scriptures as telling the truth in terms that would have been intelligible to the people first reading it. And then it becomes the task of the latter day interpreter to make sense of it in terms that we understand. So in other words, it's not that the text is deficient or even that the time period is deficient but rather it is that we are all historically contingent. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the ways that we interpret it now, and for that matter, the, the philosophies that underlie various kinds of agnosticism and atheism and so on and so forth now, uh, if history is any indicator, there's a fair chance that they won't be all that intelligible 500 years from now, just <laughs> as a lot of things that people were writing 500 years ago don't make a whole lot of sense to us. Right. So it's one of those things where I, you know, I, I, I think the fact that I'm a historicist makes this question less daunting, uh, mm-hmm. not less important, but it's something that we can make sense of as long as we regard, we regard ourselves as existing historically as well as the Bible itself existing historically. Mm-hmm. So as I understand it, you're essentially saying that you're more of a column B guy, where it's more about we need to learn how to read Genesis rightly. Right, and moreover, it's our responsibility to do that. Yes. You know, I mean, and, and you know, simply to say Genesis is a product of a time that is not our own, that's not the end of the conversation, that's the beginning. Right. So whereas I would tend to regard myself as a column A guy, who who feels more friendly toward column B guys, but hasn't yet been persuaded. I'm deeply <laughs> suspicious enough, of enough. column C, and do- column D is right out. Right. <laughs> so, well, here's an email from Seth Porch. 
As per usual, I am writing about an episode that took place a little while ago. That's okay, because we're reading it even later. But thought that you might find this little book interesting, and he posts a link to The Tale of Three Trees. We'll link that on the blog notes. Mm-hmm. Kids, It's a kids' modernized version of The Dream of the Rude, kind of. <laughs> I remember my mom reading me this, and it was the first thing that came to mind when I listened to this episode. Were either of you familiar with The Tale of Three Trees? Was not no, familiar I- with it. But I looked at it on Amazon. It looked uh, it, it looked cute, but I wish that Amazon would have let me browse on the inside like it does with some books. Yeah, yeah. I looked at the Amazon link as well, and the, although I haven't ordered it, uh, it does look like a fun book. It can go right along with uh, David's kid's version of the Fairy Queen. Is it Fairy Queen? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. That that's y'all. Y'all got us that, yeah. Uh, I'm sure my, I had nothing to do with it other than okay. uh, yeah, I, yeah. I probably ordered it, but I'm, I'm sure my wife picked it out. Yeah, it's basically book one of the Fairy Queen as just a beautifully illustrated children's picture book. It's it's pretty much fantastic. And though somewhat selective in its retelling of Fairy Queen book one. Well, you have to be. <laughs> <laughs> that book just goes on. Cool. Well, thanks, Seth. Um, this one is from Eric Keys. I've been enjoying your podcast immensely. Uh, at the end of your episode on Calhoun, you mentioned that you'd like suggestions for other Christian rock albums to cover. My no- my nomination is "Thy Thy is a Word and Feet Need Lamps" by Half Handed Cloud. Hmm. It provides a good bridge from the relatively mainstream work of Sufjan Stevens. Sufjan, Sufjan. Anyway, Sufjan. To- uh, to the amazingly weird but wonderful work of Danielson family, Famille, anyway, Brother Danielson. Do either of you know Danielson? Nope. No. That is one <laughs> of the strangest things to ever happen to music. It okay. is a guy, it is kind of weird, ramshackle folk music sung by a guy with a novelty-level falsetto. <laughs> And yet, somehow, wow. somehow it's not inaccessible, and also it's profound in certain ways. I, I don't know. Danielson is is very. I I know of Half Handed Cloud. I know, I know that they have um, connections to Sufjan Stevens and Danielson family, but I haven't actually heard them. I know mm. Danielson family and Sufjan Stevens, of course. Well, mm-hmm. it sounds like Michael's going to take the bait, Eric. Yeah, I may I may download that episode and see if uh, see if it's something we could talk about next year. Yeah. And he closes also in response to your bookcases episode, any summer reading list that has mysteries on it should definitely include Rex Stout's Nero Wolf novels. I usually try and pack a few in my carry on if I'm going on a long plane ride. And I totally agree with that. Rex Stout's Nero Wolf novels are awesome. Awesome. Um, I inherited a goodly number of them from my grandmother who got me onto mystery reading. Um, and they're just a fantastic mashup of of the kind of gritty, hardball detective fiction, and the sort of Sherlock Holmes style consulting detective who never leaves home. <laughs> so very, very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, our next uh, email is from Tim Webb. Yeah, Tim Webb. Pardon me. Uh, and I have two Tim Webb emails here, so I got confused for just a moment. Uh, it says, Hey, humanists, I love the show, and in between listening to more recent episodes, 
I listen to your trilogy of shows about the original, the only, Star Wars films. Occasional contributor <laughs> Danny Anderson made a, quite a big deal in the Return of the Jedi episode about the Ewoks as an embodiment of the noble savage stereotype. He seemed to put this on the same level as the other ostensible racial stereotypes referenced in the prequels. There's a lot of scare quotes here. I'm making them with my fingers, I promise. Uh, I can understand how some races could take offense at any number of potential racial stereotypes in the Star Wars films, but who exactly is supposed to take offense at the noble savage stereotype? Descendants of the dead white Europeans who came up with the idea should be offended because it was such a bad idea. Do tell. Danny brought it up several times in that episode, which piqued my curiosity. Keep up the good work and remember the wisdom of Heath Ledger's Joker. Whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. Uh, and Michael, I don't have Danny's response. I know he wrote one up on my screen. Do you happen to have it ready to hand? I'm looking for it. That was a Heidegger reference, listeners. Here it is. I'll I'll read it. <clears throat> Get it. Hey guys. Well, of all the dumb, I, I I'm sorry. I'm not doing Danny's voice. Can either of you do a good Anderson impression? No, nah, just keep it rolling, man. Well, of all the dumb things I've said on the show, this is what finally comes back to get me, huh? The trope of the noble savage has a really long history and is therefore pretty complex. I probably did link this trope to the series' general tendency to rely on racial stereotyping, which did a disservice to the complexity of the term. Though on that topic, please don't tell me that the evil, greedy shopkeeper in the first two prequels isn't a textbook figure from anti-Semitic propaganda of the past and present. Yeah, he is. The trope mm -hmm. essentially idealizes people groups who haven't been tainted by civilization and are therefore somehow more ethically tied to nature. This was a big deal in the Romantic and Primitivist movements. It sounds okay at first, but there are problems. For one thing, this kind of goes against the whole idea of, say, original sin, so there's that. The bigger problem with the trope for this discussion is its tendency to reduce non-white people to easy-to-digest stereotypes. What it accomplishes is that it removes indigenous people from the modern world by making them innocent, romantic images of a lost ideal past. This takes away two things. A, their contemporary voice, and B, their humanity. By removing the stain of civilization from the noble savage, we also remove their full, complex humanity and their ability to add to debates within the scope of the civilization that they are somehow above. When I was talking about the Ewoks and the figure of the noble savage, I was critical because, to quote Obi-Wan, from a certain point of view, the trope, even though it seems benign and even complimentary, still functions as the same kind of debilitating racial stereotype as the flying evil Jew in Attack of the Clones. Keep up the good work <laughs> and thank Tim for the question. Good stuff. Trilling rules and McIntyre drools. <laughs> and he, he would end with a shot across my bow, wouldn't he? <laughs> awesome. it's, it's not so much that it's not so much that the, the the use of that trope offends people who believe in the trope as it is that the, the film seems to accept the trope uncomplicatedly, and so it, it offends the people who, I don't know, the people who we would see as Ewoks. I, I don't know how to finish that sentence. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let me take a stab at it. I mean, it's not that it offends somebody. It's that it educates our imaginations wrongly. Yes. Uh, so in other words, if we think of certain people groups as unstained and therefore uncomplicated, what mm. it does is it sets us up later on when we, when we actually encounter people who are different from us to regard them as an earlier stage in some very simple evolutionary progress. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that is, is notable about this is that, you know, it's not, uh, you know, generally when you hear, you know, cultural studies language, 
you know, usually you think of it, you know, as, as pretty predictable in terms of right-left alignments. Uh, but in this case, I've actually seen this used. Ah, gosh. I mean, I, I don't even know, you know, how to name the, the political phenomenon, but I've, I've seen people, you know, I would say cherry-pick certain things about, especially indigenous American tribes, and mm-hmm. basically say that they were somehow untainted by whatever it is that makes whitey crazy. Right. And I, you know, uh, this is one of those places where both my, my historicist self and my perennialist self, and yes, I have both of them. It makes me quite a confused person. Uh, it makes both (laughs) of them twitch a little bit because on the one hand, I want to say that human beings as a species, uh, have a tendency to find ways to be wretched to each other. That's, you know, my paraphrase of original sin. Uh, and then also, I mean, just historically, when you actually look at the full picture of things, it turns out that human societies are really quite complicated critters. Right. Well, and, and a good pop cultural example here is the Neil Young song, Cortez the Killer. Do you guys know that one? No, I don't. Uh-huh. He's talking about Cortez coming to the Aztecs, right? And, mm-hmm. and he says, of the Aztecs, before Cortez's arrival, hate was just a legend and war was never known. Wow! The Aztecs are, are one of the most me? famously bloody societies in all of human history, but you know, it's Cortez who really did. Not not that Cortez wasn't, you know, a bad dude. Not that he didn't do terrible things, too. But <laughs> we, we don't do the Aztecs any favors by pretending that they were these childlike, innocent, right. Avatar-esque, uh, well, noble savages. Right. Yeah, that, this is where Christopher Marlowe becomes quite a good educator, because if you read uh, his play, The Jew of Malta, you get uh, Muslims and Jews and Christians who are basically competing for five acts to see which religion can be the most wretched. <laughs> <laughs> well, another th- uh, another point, I think that I'm playing off of Danny's response, and sort of a touchback to Prince Mishkin, is that the the noble savage so readily that 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 stereotype so readily renders a people group into kind of a, a cultural Prince Mishkin, mm-hmm. who's too good for this world, and their their simple noble innocent viewpoint is unsuited for dealing with the complexities of the modern world, and so we need to step in and make their decisions for them. Right, possibly by you know foisting upon them a. a uh protocol droid disguised as a god uh, and so forth <laughs> yeah you know so yeah yeah and, and i also want to throw in peter pan here because why on earth are native americans and never never land along with fairies do you know why there, there's actually no, why? an answer for that why um, neverland is supposed to be a kind of ultimate universe for children's stories that's why there's pirates and mermaids and it's all it's all these kind of semi-legendary figures from childhood. Yeah. Huh. And Native Americans get to be in that same category. Hey, have you have you, have you have you looked at like European attitudes toward Native Americans? Europeans Not lately. <laughs> Europeans like love cowboy and Indian stuff. I mean, I don't want to say oh, every yeah. European does, but that that is a that is a very big thing in like European children's I remember Fiction. reading an essay about that in uh, in a German class that apparently Germans just love them, the Native Americans, and the French do too. So huh. I, I I think that's right. why that's why n- n- again not to not to excuse the really atrocious presentation of Native Americans, especially in the Disney film. 
uh, what makes the red man red and all that. But like, Oof. like uh, Barry's actually <laughs> up to something with that, with that confluence of, of characters. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's an ugly thing, but it's not his ugly thing. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's his ugly thing or not, <laughs> but, but you still but have he, to be responsible for it. Right. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Trying to loop it back to the beginning. Well, here's an email from Chin Boulay. If I remember your stories correctly, each of you earned a BA at a private Christian college, then an MA at a different school, and finally the PhD in English at UGA. If you were comfortable providing details, can you share your stories or how you funded your secondary and postgraduate education in the humanities? Did it require you to go into debt with student loans, or were you able to finish your PhDs debt-free? Also, how many years were required to complete all degrees? I ask because I have two sons who are on a path to pursue the humanities after high school. I want to help them calibrate their expectations in terms of what they will need to invest, both time and money, if they want to earn a PhD in the humanities. Knowing your stories will help that conversation. I will miss you guys over the summer, though I'm glad you get a break from work and from podcasting. Have a fun and restful time. I'll go ahead and start off on this because I actually uh, emailed Chen Boulay uh, with some of the details of my story. I, I did take out student loans to attend uh, Milligan College in Tennessee. Uh, I did not take out student loans for seminary or my master's degree. However, once I got to the Ph.D. level, Mary and I were starting our family uh, and kids being expensive and T.A. positions not paying all that well. I did take out some more student loans there. So I am still uh, paying off student loans from two phases in my academic career. Mary is, too, because she had to take out loans to do her master's in education. So... That's the background stuff. I I lay all that out just to say that the way that we look at things, um, the student loans are simply just part of the monthly bills. Uh, It's not something to where, you know, we spend a lot of time month to month thinking about the moral failings of taking student loans or anything like that. Uh, That ideology, frankly, came along after both of us had done our graduate work. And so, you know, we just kind of, you know, hear people and I'll go ahead and name names because I'm, I'm sure our listeners know who I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, when the Pharaoh Dave Ramsey says that we are somehow morally <laughs> deficient because we took out student loans, Mary and I just kind of, you know, do our Mr. Spock eyebrow and say, well, what a curious thing to say. <laughs> On the other hand, the student loan system, you know, the government has sold those loans now to private companies who raise the rates and... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Systemically, I think there's better ways to do education, but I want to go on record saying that you are not morally deficient if you took out student loans. Absolutely. And I mean, I have students whose parents paid their way through college in the 70s by by working in the summer, and that you can't do that anymore. It's not possible. You can't possibly make enough money to, to go to school, even, even at like a state school, from my understanding. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if we have students listening who feel bad about taking out loans it's not your fault it's it's the the system is is corrupt and you should do what you need to do to get the education you want and hopefully the system will change at some point right and then i mean and and then i'll let david in sorry david i'm talking a lot on no this but this, this is something i do get fired up about because i do have a lot of ramsey heads in my in my little world uh but okay. I, I think that why you are getting your education really does matter when you answer this question. Uh, if you are getting an education so that you can have more money in the bank and so that you can buy a boat with cash and not take a loan out to get it, uh, then yeah, I mean, going to a Christian college and majoring in the humanities is a terrible idea. 
If, on the other hand, you are convinced by writers like Boethius and Dante that money exists for the sake of higher things, then ultimately paying a student loan payment every month is not the worst thing in the world if the money that you lay out for that leads you into a life where you desire what I would call better things. I will also say uh, we live in this time when college is supposed to be practical, practical, practical. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the supposedly practical majors don't actually have better job placement rates than English. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nationally, English has better job placement rates than criminal justice and then psychology. Um, Both of which I think people tend to see as, oh, you know, those are majors you do if you want to get a job. And you do English if you want to piddle around and work at a fast food restaurant. Uh, In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, the... uh, the statistics say the exact opposite. So it, it's it's not so much a matter of choosing practicality over a liberal arts education. In fact, you may not end up working in the field you studied, but very few people do. So study something that is going to make you a more interesting, well-rounded person. And trust that, that something will come along for you, although it may take a while. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, David, get in there because I, I, I went off on a rant there. Um. <laughs> Well, it's it is worth pursuing um, the kinds of financial aid and scholarships that you can, uh, and doing the kinds of things that you can do in order to get those, uh, especially at the undergraduate level. Um, the the less I mean, debt. I, I don't regard debt as a sinful evil, but it is an evil in the in the kind of Ecclesiastes way, right? You know, it's 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 one of those things to which we are subject, and you know, I, I don't I don't necessarily say you know, you're a terrible person for 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 being in debt, but it's still there, and you got to pay it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. You know, I'm not saying. And then it's I'll not just note it. that Dante has just a circle there. not for people who take out loans, but for people who loan money at interest. All right, <laughs> go ahead, David. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so you know, it's a, for for me, it's a prudent thing. It, it's prudent to get through with as little debt as possible. But nonetheless, there are reasons, and I think Nathan's sketched those out for why debt you you know debt might actually be worth doing um, for for what you want to pursue because you consider the thing itself worth pursuing. Um, I got through my bachelor's without debt because. I was able to get uh, a 50% of tuition um, honor scholarship for maintaining uh, because of test scores, and then I maintained my grades to keep it. And then I worked. Um, I worked all year through my whole undergraduate to pay the rest of, of the other half of that. And because the college I went to permitted you to make payments um, instead of asking for all of it up front, I was able to make that work. So in other words, I was wrong when I said that you can't do it anymore? It, it, it depended on where I was. I also lived at home. I did ah. not live on campus. Yeah. Right? I didn't have a meal plan. All right? So I lived a pretty, you know, I, and, and I did nothing but school and work. And I paid for nothing but school and work. And, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that I had parents who were continuing to put a roof over my head. And, and food in your belly. And food in my belly. Um, those were, those were the things that made it possible. I got through my master's without debt, um, because I paid, I paid the first year on my own, um, still working. And then in my second year of master's, um, I had a teaching assistantship, which paid my, which paid all but some fees. 
and had a stipend. Right. So that helped. Um, for PhDs, uh, PhDs are seen as an investment by um, universities, so that typically, you know, PhDs are funded. Um, you you have to live like a monk while you have that funding for a whatever kind of assistantship kind of position that's in. Uh, now there are places where you can get PhDs that that are unfunded, but don't do that. Yeah. As I was as I was told when I was applying to PhD programs, if they're not offering you an assistantship, uh, they're just taking your money. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Go where go where they go where they want you. At least uh, in English, I should say I don't know anything about how any other type of PhD works. Right. 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 So, you know, uh, but I did, I did, you know, as Nathan said, I did take out some loans, um, for my PhD too, because, um, you know, the, the, the remuneration was not, um, you know, it was not great and it was just quite not enough that each year I took out a little bit just to kind of get through the year. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm still paying that off, um, you know, but I don't. I don't look at that debt and say, "Ah, oh, me, what a world, what a world." You know, I look at that debt and say, "Okay," and that helped me to have a a straightened but relatively comfortable and happy life for the years that I was in Athens and met my wife and had a happy first few years of marriage and was actually able to do something other than sit at home and weep into my ramen. Mm-hmm. So. Although I still did a lot of weeping. Well, <laughs> we all do a lot of weeping, but I'm not doing it because of my debt. I actually managed to get through without any debt because my parents were very generous. They they paid for my entire undergrad education. And uh, my master's, I worked as a secretary, departmental secretary, so I, you get free tuition with that. So I, I never I never paid any tuition for my master's. And also, actually, that paid a lot better than being a graduate assistant would have. I should say most programs don't offer first-year assistantships um, yes. for master's students, although some do, including my alma mater, the University of Nebraska at Omaha. So, I mean, th- those do exist, and if, if you need that, that, that is a thing you can look for. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my parents continued to send me money every month throughout my master's and Ph.D., and I recognize that I am really incredibly fortunate in, in that sense. I, I have students here at Crown who have to work two jobs all summer because their parents don't have the money to send them to college. And I'm not sure I appreciated how lucky I was (laughs) when I was their age. But every time I talk to one of them, I call my dad and thank him. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of time, it took me 13 years from when I started until when I finished. Um, And uh, I did an extra semester of undergrad and an extra semester of my master's. So I think I I had six years uh, on my, PhD, and I don't think that's atypical. Uh, it, it is a substantial amount of work. The The one big piece of advice I have for anybody considering a PhD, if you can help it at all, don't get a job until you finish. Because, mm. number one, it's really hard but uh, to, to work on a dissertation and have a full-time job. But number yes, two, it is. <laughs> number two, you'll lose your stipend. I mean, you're, you're typically funded for four to five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you won't have to pay tuition if you stay there and teach the two classes you have to teach. On the other hand, if you go and take another job, you're suddenly going to owe somewhere between a thousand and three thousand dollars a semester, mm-hmm. um, and that's not an insignificant amount of money when you're just starting your job, you know? Right, right. 
The other thing I wanted to point out, and, and I don't know if we've made an official announcement on this podcast. We did make it on the, the Facebook page. My wife is no longer in academia, at least for the time being. She has a PhD. She um, she got a job with public radio. And, and I, I want to point out, uh, about th- uh, one-third of humanities PhDs don't teach. And, and instead, they have another job where their, uh, where their degree is useful and helpful that is not in, acad- in the academic world. And so, mm-hmm. you know, those of you who are thinking about doing a PhD, I'm not sure I would recommend doing one if you don't want to teach, but understand that the job market is rough, but there are other things you can do with your PhDs um, other than just teach at the university level. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And frankly, well, it, you'll probably make more money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, there is the kind of person for whom degrees are a kind of intellectual Everest, and they climb them because they're there. Especially I'm if you don't have to person. pay for it. Yeah, I'm not that person, but I'm not saying that such a person couldn't have a happy and rewarding life. <laughs> <laughs> So I hope that answers your question, Chimboulay. You know, it's it is a substantial time investment. I mean, yeah. it, assuming I live to be seventy three, that's more than a seventh of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and there probably wasn't a two week period after my undergrad where I didn't wonder if I was doing the right thing. And when I when I have students who go and enter master's programs, I tell them if they're not having a major existential crisis at the end of their first semester, they're probably not thinking about this. Because <laughs> like it's it's a really it's a really scary thing, and and still I I, I have nightmares that they're going to come take my diploma away. <laughs> and you didn't even have the uh, three days before graduation format yeah. hustle that I did. No. Yeah. Well, I, I was have, able to format yeah. my dissertation correctly on the first try. Yeah, I knew that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I didn't. I didn't realize it was hard until other people told it's, me. It's only hard for some people. <laughs> for a yeah, certain yeah. type of person. But don't yeah, worry, yeah, Nathan. Yeah. You can't the, help the way you are. You know that the sad thing is, you guys can't see my middle fingers right now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Now, do uh, we have to? Do we have to get an explicit tag for that? <laughs> if, if if you narrate a lewd gesture, I, I'm not sure. I... <laughs> um, I, I I will say that if if you have a kind of, uh, it helps to have a certain kind of theology of vocation. Yes, it does. And actually regard the pursuit of the degree itself as vocation, not merely something preparatory to vocation. Right. Um, while you are in it, you are in a special place. You have um, an immense privilege that most human beings never get. Yes. And so, you know, I, I, one of the things that I think absolutely needs to be in the consideration is, is not just saying, will this lead to the, the lucrative, rewarding, you know, profession that I want to see at the end, but will I make the most of this time? Because uh, I know that in many ways I didn't, and I regret now not having taken advantage of the fact that I was surrounded by brilliant minds, surrounded by resources um, that I didn't take advantage of to the extent that I could have. So, yeah. The other thing is, especially if you go to a small school like the ones we went to, maybe not Nathan, because Nathan's school was different than mine and David's, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Grad school is the first time you meet people who are 
as academically inclined as you are. At least it was for me. Intellectually oh, goodness. inclined, I should Oh, goodness. Say. Yeah, I mean, Milligan really was a strange little Christian island that way. I mean, the people who graduated, or let me put it to you this way. I mean, the people who were in college at the same time I was, the percentage of people who now have PhDs is astounding in retrospect. Right. Right. And I'm not, I'm not sure, I, I haven't done the research, but I think I may be the only one from my graduating class. Yeah. I know a number of people from my little college that went on to do, um, masters and PhDs and uh, ministry doctorates and things like that. I, I, I feel like for, for a couple years there, they were, we were producing some, some heavy hitters, many of whom I'm still in contact with and am actually kind of in awe that I went to school with them. Um, but, but for the most part, not Michael's my, Michael's right. Um, if you get into a PhD program, milk that thing. Yeah, enjoy mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, and and don't expect it, don't expect to ever find anything like it again when you get out. Yes. Right. Our, our right. listeners may remember that's why this podcast exists, not for you guys, but for well, me, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably shift. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. This episode so, is going to be by far our longest ever. <laughs> uh Tim Webb uh says the bookshelf episode to end the season was lots of fun. But the dream of root of the root episode blew my mind. I often read along with you guys by listening to the beginning of an episode to find what you're reading, then reading the text, and then listening to the rest of the podcast. I'd never heard of this poem before and found it incredibly moving so that I was crying in places. I was glad to hear Grubb say that some of his students also cry when reading it. And good on you, Tim. That's Dream of the Root is it's just so beautiful. And I, I love to hear that you know, some of our listeners are are doing poetry the right way, which is to try to experience it before sitting down and analyzing it. Mm-hmm. D- David, would you that. say that that poetry has to be read forward but understand stood backwards? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Well, uh, or if I might be Latinate, uh, the order ascendi and the order cognoscendi are reversed. You have to go through the experience and then you have to think about it. The order of being and the order of knowing are in, are reversed. By the way, a suggestion for Tim. You, you don't have to listen to the beginning of the episode to find out what we're reading. When we have single-text episodes, we generally post about it on a Facebook page a week in advance. Right. So listeners, go to our Facebook page now. And, and in fact, if it's an op- <laughs> if, if it's a if it's a uh, what do they call it? PD, public domain text. Um, we usually mm. post a link to it. Right. Yeah. Or uh, some kind of a link to a um, in addition that we're using, or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. We, we try to talk about things that you guys can have access to. Yes, except that one article about the devil taking visa. Oh gosh, I'm sorry, guys. I <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> it's the same sort of moral failure as the uh, as the format check. <laughs> oh, oh, oh man. Ouch. Well, okay, let's 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 move on to the next one. All right. Um well, hold up. There's there's more of uh, Tim's email. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Oh, sorry. I'm my my bad. Question, what edition of Milton's Paradise Lost would you recommend I use? Uh I've never read it and would like an edition that has good notes for a general reader. That is, I don't need a full-blown commentary on it. Thanks and keep up the good work, Texas Tim. I guess I'll be Texas Dave soon, right? Yeah. Uh, one edition that I, first of all, I'll say that the edition that I used for my dissertation and the one that I use when I'm 
preparing to teach Milton is uh, Merritt Hughes, uh, The Complete Poems and Major Prose of John Milton. It's a very nice scholarly edition. Uh, it's not too expensive. Uh, it's not as expensive as the Riverside, for instance. That said, a, a really inexpensive recent edition that I've come to enjoy a good deal is Paradise Lost, the biblically annotated ed- edition. Uh, mm. It's edited by Matthew Stollard. Uh, my mother got it for me for a uh, birthday gift a couple years ago. Uh, and its footnotes are copious, but they deal exclusively with the way that Milton is interacting interacting with the text of the Bible. Mm. Uh, so it's just a lot of fun just to kind of dig into the footnotes and think about the poem in ways that other even scholarly editions don't necessarily spend a whole lot of time on. Cool. I use the Oxford University Press uh, major works. It's got Paradise Lost in full and some good footnotes, but mm-hmm. I would defer to Nathan here. Yeah. I do think it's good to to read it in uh, a collection of other Milton poetry, just so you can see how uh, atypical it is compared to his earlier work. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we will go on to the next email. Uh, uh, D.E. Bricker, which stands for Dave, it turns out, uh, says, Just finding your podcast. Very good. Have you, can, have you covered Rene Girard in a precious episode? Getting a lot of play in popular circles right now with Peter Thiel's affinity for the same. I think all uh, our episodes are pretty precious. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think that was supposed to be previous. Yeah, yeah. After I read it, I realized I probably should have read that more carefully. <laughs> but so I'm, my apologies, Dave. As, my, as I learned from the Encyclopedia Brown novels, the uh, the C and the V are right next to each other. Uh huh. <laughs> they even split open the cat. <laughs> anyway, um, Dave, I have read some Rene Girard, but it's been twenty years. Uh, have you guys read any Girard at all? No, indeed. No, afraid not. All right, so uh, so two things. One, it would be a .01 episode if we did Gerard, and number two, <laughs> uh, I would have to go back and reread it. So I will say that, uh, you know, do not think that the Lord is slow in the way that mortals are slow, but you can pretty well assume that we are. You know, um, if, if, if D- Dave, if, if you have a uh, recommendation for a shortish Gerard essay that mm-hmm. we could read, we'd be happy to do an episode on it provided you understand that none of us are even close to non-amateurs right (laughs) nice here's an email from jonas erickson he says he wrote last summer with a list of a million podcasts your response to that was a while ago but i think that one of you that would be me michael farmer said he didn't like the slate culture gab fest i found that amusing since i discovered that podcast in the same search that led me to yours. I was taking an intro to theory course for my MA in literature. To help with my sanity, I wanted some intelligent perspectives on the study of literary theory. As a result, I've been listening to you in the GabFest ever since, and I've listened through all the archives for both shows. Love the Our Bookshelves episode and the pictures. I don't truly know a person until I know their bookshelves. Either of you want to defend the Slate Culture GabFest. No. They do good things. It's the, I, I don't know. Stephen Metcalf, uh, I just always want to throttle him. I'm sure he would always want to throttle me too. Anyway, you mentioned that you were. Anyway, you mentioned that we were you were doing a listener feedback episode soon, so I thought I'd send a couple of questions. I I can't. That was my mistake and not his. I thought I'd send in a couple of questions. I'll read them one at a time. 
One of the podcasts I listen to, The Jazz Session, regularly asks for donations because of the prohibitive cost of hosting old episodes of the show. I've noticed that you guys have never asked for donations, and yet you make all your previous episodes available, so I wondered how you finance the show. We have a very simple answer to that question, which is we don't have enough listeners to make the bandwidth that important. Right, right. So it's one of those things where I don't know if this is an urban legend or whether it's real. Uh, but there are rumors that if you buy a web hosting package that lists itself as unlimited bandwidth, they will in fact charge you more if you send out more content than their prescribed quota. Uh, so far, greengeeks.com, and I'm going to give them a little free advertising here because they've been phenomenal for us. Uh, when I posed that question to them, they said, uh, well, no, our plan is unlimited bandwidth, so we'd charge you the same. Cool. <laughs> I, and, you know, just just for perspective, I'm certain the Culture Gabfest gets 100,000 downloads of every episode. I, I don't know that, but I'm, I'm, I, I would definitely bet that. We get about 1,000. So, um, you know, if, if, we, if we get way more listeners than we have now, the possibility might arise that we need to find a sponsor or ask for donations. I would probably rather find a sponsor. Personally, I, you may remember I've been trying to get Lucky Strike to sponsor this program for several months. Um, but but in, in, until that time, I don't see any particular reason to ask you guys for donations or, or to go through the work of finding. We've never been against a sponsor. It's just nobody's ever approached us. Right, right. The problem was you sent uh, Pete Campbell to try to secure that account and it just didn't work out. <laughs> wasn't, it, wasn't it Sal who, who ran into trouble with Lucky Strike? I, I, you you know that series better than I do, Michael. I've watched it, but I but not as a scholar. I I, uh, I was making a Jack Benny reference with the with the Lucky Strike, not so much. Oh, okay, a, okay, not, okay. not so much a Mad Men reference. I'm much I'm much more underground. <laughs> <laughs> so that was question number one. Question number two from Jonas. You said you created your podcast to help you get jobs as professors. Now you all have jobs as professors. Did the podcast help? No, indeed, it did not. <laughs> Didn't help okay. me. I, when I interviewed here, not one person. I, I, one person brought up the blog just as like something that existed, but nobody listened to a single episode before they interviewed me. So no, I can't imagine that the podcast helped me. Well, though, though, though let's be fair. Um, when you got the job that you're in, the podcast had not been around so long. Two years. Yeah, well, fair enough. Had it been two years? I thought it had only been around one. Yeah, it was the spring of 2011. We started in the fall of 2009, so four four semesters. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be. I yeah, for some reason I thought that you started in uh, yeah. Minnesota in 2010. Nope, 2011. Okay, all right, all right. That's that's my bad math then. Well, you were uh, already in your position, Nathan, right? Yeah, I was gonna say I I had already been in a, in, in an assistant professor for three months when we recorded our first episode. So, uh, because of the difficulty of time travel, no, mine did not help me secure that job. I am uncertain of of that the answer to that question, Jonas. Um, I know that uh, I was I was asked about it on uh, the when I when I applied for the job at Central and the job at HBU, but I, I've never gotten a sense whether or not that was uh, considered an asset or a liability. Um, so. 
it, yeah, I, I really don't know the answer to that question. And, and honestly, I think when we said we created the podcast to help us get jobs as professors, I think when we said that, it was at least half in jest. I was not joking. No, that is uh, okay. that is one of the things I started this podcast for. Okay, well, if I said it, I was joking. Just like we started profiles to get free books and, and network. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten me some free books. It's true, yeah, and expensive books. Books I, I, books I never would have paid for. Too too expensive, not because they're not good. And we networked. Well, I, I think it's wicked fun to talk to really smart people. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, all the people I read in seminary are now on our show. And, and that's awesome. It's, <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. All right. Well, can we shift to Noah? Yes. All right. Noah Arney. um, I've been listening to you guys for a while and loving your podcast, but you seriously need a web redesign. It looks, (laughs) it looks like it's out of geo cities and not in a cool retro way. What? You don't like our animated gifts? (laughs) The Um, the music, the mighty fortresses are God that plays in MIDI when you open the page. (laughs) Flashing under construction icons. Keep doing what you're doing. Just make the web smiley face, which I guess pulls the punch. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Nathan, you're the guy who does the website. Do you have anything to say? Yes, yes. And actually, no, I had already been planning to do a redesign on the website, uh, although I, I seriously considered not doing it just to spite you because you're... <laughs> uh, but <laughs> uh, if you go to ChristianHumanist.org, we have redesigned it. Uh, it's a certainly a new look. The menus and the recent comments and all that I've put in sub menus and such. So uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that a little bit better than the old version. So uh, listeners, all of you should go check that out. Tell me what you think. Cool beans. All right, and our final email. Wow! Because, my goodness, this has been a list of emails. Is from Paul Johnson, who says. Dear humanists, I have a question for you. I was raised in a fundamentalist church, and my Christianity is suffused with fundamentalism. In fact, I have become increasingly concerned that much of what I thought were the fundamental, excuse the pun, elements of my Christianity are actually elements of fundamentalism, dispensationalism, American nationalism, or a combination of all three. Could you direct me to some resources, web or print, that would help me in my quest to differentiate my faith from this kind of culture? I'm not sure if there are resources out there that are explicit as this is how Southern Baptists are wrong about Christianity, but that's kind of what I'm looking to find. Any help in this area would be greatly appreciated. So, David, you're making uh, exasperated gasping noises. You want to start off on this one? Uh, It's just the ouch, how Southern Baptists are wrong about Christianity, Um, especially considering that I'm now employed by a Southern Baptist school. Um, Ever the company man, David. Yes. Um... (laughs) Well, you, you will note that even even as working for a free Methodist college, I still said I was a Calvinist. So, you know, just, you know, I just didn't say nasty things about John Wesley, um, which I wouldn't anyway, because, you know, anyway, whatever. Um, I do think Paul's doing a good thing uh, in that he's he's looking back at what he's calling the fundamental elements of his Christianity and actually recognizing that there are multiple things feeding on into that. And he identifies fundamentalism, dispensationalism and American nationalism, which that's actually probably the best way to do it. Um, 
a lot of folks who come out of fundamentalist backgrounds when when they move out they they just sort of shake the dust off of their sandals and run as far away from all of it as possible mm-hmm. um but all of it is not equally worth running from i would say um there are ways in which i will still say i'm a fundamentalist um in ways that i would say that's that's not what i am um i would say that even in, in talking about fundamentalism there's actually two maybe even three different issues there there's the fundamentalism in terms of doctrine which has to do with the fundamentals volumes that were produced in the early 1900s that were basically in response to um, a more skeptical biblical criticism um and then you know they they were basically saying no jesus is god and the bible's true and basically arguing that there are there are beliefs without which christianity ceases to be christianity and I think that particular instinct is a correct instinct. Um, we might debate about the particular doctrines that they chose to take a stand on, but I don't think the instinct itself is incorrect. Um, the other two elements in fundamentalism, fundamentalism are a tendency to associate particular, um, particular behaviors or ways of interacting or consuming in culture with Christian piety, don't drink, dance, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another aspect of fundamentalism. And then I guess if there's a third kind of connected to the second, it's a general sense in, wi- uh, in which uh, the purity of Christianity is maintained by a disengagement from culture. So I would say that the, the first, in terms of doctrine, I think that's a good instinct. Um, I tend to be less sympathetic towards the fundamentalist um, behaviors of piety and not sympathetic at all towards that disengagement from culture that fundamentalism um, eventually embraced. So, you know, I think helping to make differentiations in, in what kinds of things ended up in the DNA of your Christian identity helps you to kind of rethink those things in a more... Um, I think more rational way than just emotively throwing out all of it. And I think that's what you're doing. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, good on you. I agree with that. Nathan? Yeah. To follow up, I would say that one of the things to realize, and this goes back to being a historicist is that you have to be aware that you are in a historical moment and that historical change happens and yeah. yet you still have to inhabit your own historical moment. You don't get to pretend that you're inhabiting the future because it ain't happened yet. Uh, so it, it's one of those things where I think when you, when you deal with those three influences you were talking about, dispensationalism, militarism, uh, what was the third one? Uh, well, uh, Amer- American nationalism, if you're including militarism as part of oh, that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah so, yeah, so fundamentalism, dispensationalism, American nationalism. These things are certainly part of your Christianity. What I think that too many people ignore is that when you when you go and become something different, it's not that you are uninfluenced by other things, you are influenced simply by different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really it becomes a question, what sorts of influences are better influences and which ones are worse influences and why do you think that? And that's why, you know, projects like this, and this is why we love our listeners so much, uh, this is a continuing conversation on all kinds of influences 
that interact with all Christians who are living in our historical moment. That's why we talk about internet and history and philosophy and theology and literary texts from the 6th century B.C. and mm-hmm. literary texts from the 21st century B.C. because all of these things are orbiting around us. And I, I, I'm going to break into some Heidegger language here right before I lateral it to Micah, to, to Michael, pardon me, my son just walked through. Uh, <laughs> um, is that, you know, when we, when we think about our existence, you know, Heidegger's notion of thrownness, I think, is a very helpful way to think about it. The world already has its own contours. We are projected onto those contours. Our responsibility is not to create an identity from scratch, but it is to take a stand on who we are as a part of a world that was there before we got there. So we are responsible for it, and also we can't change all of it. Uh, And honestly, I mean, I think that complexity is what I appreciate about Heidegger, especially in the Internet moment that David was referring to, where people think that they can basically reinvent themselves from whole cloth, and nobody's going to notice that they're actually just taking on a new body of influences. Uh, so, Michael, what would you add? I've, I've gone Heidegger. Are you going <laughs> to raise my bet? Uh, no, probably not. Two suggestions. First, read very widely in Christian history. Um, yes. Find out what Christians who existed before the fundamentalist movement actually believed. Mm-hmm. Not saying you have to agree with everything, but uh, that'll give you some... That'll give you some context. The other thing is a, a specific book. This is by a, a United Methodist pastor called Martin Thielen, T-H-I-E-L-E-N. It's a book called What's the Least I Can Believe and Still Be a Christian? And <laughs> and his, his goal there is to kind of trim Christianity of its uh, fundamentalist, evangelical, what-have-you trappings and get down to what the, the very basics are. So mm-hmm. I don't agree with everything in that book, but I think it's a good place to start. Right, right. And as far as the, the nationalism question goes, uh, you know, pretty predictable on my part, but I'm going to recommend one of Stan Hauerwas's, uh earlier books, which is The Peaceable Kingdom. Uh, his project is not primarily to refute nationalism, but it is to imagine what Christianity would look like if we started from the New Testament as a political document. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting argument, even if you don't end up agreeing with it, Precisely for that reason. Yeah. And I will say last about that American nationalism, in defense of the Southern Baptists, um, they did disinvite Ben Carson from a conference. So, at least in in my observation of of folk who kind of identify in those ways, there is... um, not Maybe not a majority, but there certainly is a vocal minority saying we don't need to so readily identify with particular political factions in the American scene, which I, I see as a healthy trend. So, yeah. All right. Well, believe it or not, that's all the uh, feedback we have. Lord knows Woo! how long this episode's been. <laughs> uh, we will try to get to them more quickly next time. Um, we'll be back sometime in July with another episode. Yeah, can I go ahead and propose an episode subject matter? Please. Uh, When we record in July, first of all, hopefully it won't run two hours, uh, but it will be a conversation about the book of Amos. Sounds good. Ooh, neat. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group uh, that you are 
more than invited to join to join join to oh man i've been recording too long <laughs> yeah until next time this is michael farmer for david grubbs and nathan gilmore saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger